We start in Ephesians chapter 3. I was given the task for yesterday's lectureship, given the title, the topic, the glory and the grandeur of the church. I have to admit, and I told Larry that I struggled with that because when I hear the word glory, all my mind goes to is the passages that talk about all the glory, honor, and praise belongs to God. And it doesn't really belong to the church, per se. However, from studying this and thinking about this, it is the, the church receives its glory or can be a glorious church when it reflects Christ in their worship and in their words and in their deeds. And that is where we're going with this today. That song that you just sang was perfect. For Christ and the church. That was that. Go back and read that song and you will see the meaning of this sermon. It is according to the eternal purpose that God made this congregation, that God made the church for the purpose of showing the manifold wisdom of God. As was a part of our reading, Paul is saying, I wanted to uh, make all see what is the fellowship of the mystery which from the beginning of the ages has been hidden in God who created all things through Jesus Christ to the intent, to the intention that now on this side of the cross in this last dispensation of time, the manifold wisdom of God might be made known by the church. When the church acts like the church, the world can see the manifold wisdom of God. When the church is the church, that's where we're going with this thing today. When the church is the church, then the world can see. The principalities and the powers in the heavenly can see the manifold wisdom of God. And this is according to the eternal purpose which was accomplished in Christ Jesus. In His death, burial, and resurrection and those who follow Him we reflect His light. We reflect His love. That is how we receive our glory. I want us to think about a few words before we get going here. We think about the word glory itself. Glory found in both the Old Testament and in the New has various and diverse meanings and definitions, and so we need to be careful with how we use it. Sometimes it simply means brightness of light. Sometimes, in the Old Testament in particular, it means the presence of God. Sometimes, you'll find in Philippians 3 and 1 Corinthians chapter 5, that glory can mean indulging in sin. He says their glory is their shame, or glorying is not good, because they are indulging in sin. Most frequently, however, it is used to define worth. And value, it is defined as honor and praise. And that's how it's going to be used today. When the church is the church, we will bring all the glory and honor and praise to God. As a matter of fact, you'll find that in this very chapter, in the last verse, I believe, 20 or 21. Now to him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think according to the power that works in us, to him to God or to Christ, be glory. Where? In the church. In the church by Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. It's the intended purpose 
that we shine the, the glory of God into the world to show the manifold wisdom of God. Another word I want us to think about is not just glory, but the word church itself. Jesus used this word when he said, Upon this rock I will build my church. We know it to be singular in nature, but I want us to think about the word itself. The word that Jesus used is ecclesia. You've probably heard that many times before, but what does it mean? It means the called out. Ek, meaning out, klesia, to call. The called out, or to call out, and that's what's happened in Christ, or through the gospel, calling people out of the world, calling people out of false religions, and calling them to Christ. So it's a group of people in this place and around the world who have chosen to heed the call of coming to Jesus, who is the author and finisher of our faith and following him. But let's set that aside for just a second and think about what it meant to a Greek. A Greek some four or five hundred years before Jesus ever used that word, before he set foot on this earth, that, that little piece of paper that you have in between Malachi and Matthew represents about 400 years of history. And in that time, you'll find some Greeks there. And how did they use that word? Among the Greeks, there were three different types of groups. There was the sovereign people who made the laws, and then there was the council who kind of executed the laws. But there was this in-between, and that was the ecclesia, and that was more on a local level. They called them city-states, and there would be these, these groups of Greek men they had to be Greek. They had to be at least 18 years old. And in some of the city-states, they had to have some military obligation. They had to be in the military. While other city-states, not only did you have to be in the military, but you had to be in battle. Now, why? Why all these requirements to be a part of this ecclesia? Because all of these things pointed to leadership, it pointed to maturity, but most of all, particularly the military part, you have a vested interest in your city-state. And if you've gone to battle, then you've shown a willingness to defend that city-state where you live. And it means something to you. Now you have this group of people called the Ecclesia, and they would gather together to debate things. And you have basically a room full of alpha males and they would debate things and discuss things, and they would make laws and remove laws, and they would talk about things that needed to be done in that city-state. Sometimes they would appoint magistrates and people who have certain delegations of, of authority in that city-state. And they would be under evaluation by this same group of people. And a lot of times you had this fr friction and tension between the two, uh, between these groups of men. However, and this may be, I think, why Jesus used this word. When there came an existential threat from the outside to threaten your city-state, to threaten your group, all of a sudden you put your pettiness aside and you stand shoulder-to-shoulder -shoulder with these men and you defend your existence. You defend your culture together because it has meaning and it has purpose. And so it's worthy of defending and standing shoulder-to-shoulder -shoulder to fight against that threat. Now I think I begin to see why Jesus made this ecclesia, this group of people who are going to have all sorts of quirks and personalities, and there's going to be debate, and there's going to be tension among them sometimes. 
But when there's a threat from the outside to the very existence of the kingdom of Christ, they'll put their pettiness aside and they'll stand shoulder to shoulder, standing on the authority of the scripture, standing for truth, standing or kneeling at the foot of the cross and lifting Jesus up together because this is the message that the world needs. And they're willing to stand and defend and fight for this and die on that hill for that Jesus, this Lord that they say they love so much. And in this, in this activity, we can show the world the manifold wisdom of God, the many manifestations and expressions of God's wisdom. And His ways and facets of God's wisdom can be seen and heard in the actions among this ecclesia in a world. It was meant to be put here in God's power and providence to make an impact, to be a bright light in a dark world and to stand firmly for that light, stand firmly for that truth and to lift Jesus up for the world to see and be willing to defend that. One thing before we actually get into this, I want to show you something else in 2 Corinthians chapter 3. So we think about glory and we think about this group of people that God has brought together. We think about this word glory. Look at what it, Paul says in 2 Corinthians 3, verse 17 and 18. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. But we all, with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as by the Spirit of the Lord. We are being transformed. We lift this up. James calls this the, the mirror that we're supposed to be looking in, this perfect law of liberty. And as the, the more we look into it, this Word of God transforms us. And so here's what I'm saying for today. There's this group of people, this ecclesia, this church that looks into the Word of God. We allow it to change us, to transform our hearts, to transform the way that we think, the things that we do, the places we go, the people that we are. And we reflect God's light and we reflect His glory into the world when we are, are the church. And so... The glory of the church is found in its outward manifestations of its inward transformation. Things happen to us when we listen to the Word of God and let it change us into the likeness of the Lord. Now, go out into the world and show the world what it means to follow Christ. There's three things I want us to notice how we can reflect God's goodness into, a, into this dark world. This dark and confused world that is filled with violence, that is filled with hatred and bitterness and division. And one of the first things I want us to notice is the unity is one way that we can reflect the Lord. I guess I need one of you guys to give me that next screen. The glory comes from unity. Now, I remind you of what the psalmist said in Psalm 133 and verse 1. Behold, how good and how pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. Not just kind of hang out with one another, but to 
be with one another, dwell with one another, live and be active in fellowship with one another, and in unity, have a common bond. As we think about what the Apostle Paul said in Galatians chapter 3, it can help us stand in stark contrast to the world, just as Paul wanted it to do. As he was speaking to the Galatians, he said, There is neither Jew or Gentile, there is neither male or female, there is neither bond or free, but we're all one in Christ. There's something about that unity that is supposed to be in contrast and different to that of the world. There is neither man or woman. Now, we might have different roles, but we're all equal. Both men and women, young and old, rich and poor, equally are sinners in need of a Savior. And if you watch the ministry of Jesus, women are very active in helping Him and supporting Him and working with Him in His ministry. And it says it explicitly in Luke chapter 8. Sometimes we look at Luke 8 and we think about just the parable of the sower. But in those first few verses of Luke chapter 8, particularly verse 3 and 4, you're going to find there's a group of women. And if you pay close attention as you read Luke, the rest of Luke from that point to the cross, you're going to find those women. There's going to be a verse here and there, and those women just kind of pop up, and there they are. Jesus is doing the preaching. Jesus is doing the leading. Je this is the ministry of Jesus and bringing people and collecting people. But one of the things that is being seen, one of the things that Jesus is tearing down in his Eastern culture there in Palestine is that he's exalting women. He's bringing them up. He's saying, you are equal, different role, but equal too. And you can find explicitly that they were very helpful in supporting him in his ministry. Women worked with men. Women worked with Jesus in the ministry. You can fast forward into the book of Acts and you can find it again. You can find it again in Acts chapter 16 after Lydia is converted by the apostle Paul. What does she do? You'll find there in verses 13 through 15, she opened up her home said, please stay here. Please stay here and use this essentially as a headquarters for the church to go out into this area. Here's a place where you can be refreshed and find fellowship and refuge. I'm going to help you. I'm going to support you. I'm going to be a part of this work, men and women working together because we're all one in Christ. There is no separation. There is no difference between men and women. We're all equal in that we're all sinners and we all need a savior and we can all work together to let that light shine in the community together you can find it again in philippians chapter 4 verse 2 and 3 most of the time we when we get into philippians we talk about philippians as a good book and a great church and it's true but there's two women and we usually we, we dig down and we hammer on the fact that these two women can't get along and we forget the rest of the verse. The rest of the verse tells us that Yodia and Syntyche, okay, they couldn't get along and they need to fix that. They need to settle their differences and become one. But it also tells us about the character of these women, that they worked together with Paul and Clement in the gospel. They labored in the gospel, because this is what the gospel was bringing to this Eastern world. 
This is radical and revolutionary. You see, you and I, we live in a Western civilization, and it's really not that big a deal. Men and women sit together all the time. We work together. We work together. We worship together. We can sit in restaurants together. It's not a big deal, but not then. One of the things that we miss because we are so steeped in Western civilization is what Jesus is doing in lifting women up. Christianity is lifting them up, and we are equals working together, different roles, but working together for the spread of the gospel. Another thing, as we think about being one, there's neither free nor bond. We're all one. In Philemon, verses 14 through 17, there's this story. It's a one-page story. Onesimus is a slave, and he runs away, and he goes, and he runs into Paul, and Paul converts him, sends him back to Philemon, who owned him. He says, when he comes back, I want you to receive him as you would me. Receive him not as a slave, verse 17, but as a brother. Christianity exalts people. It brings people freedom. Because both Philemon and Onesimus both needed Savior, because both of them were sinners, and now they work together. There's unity in the church between Philemon and Onesimus, Jew and Gentile. You got Peter and Cornelius, you got Luke and Paul, you got a Pharisee like the Apostle Paul who'd wake up every morning and say, Thank God I'm not a Gentile. And yet he turns around in Ephesians chapter 3 and verse 8 says, Unto me who am less than the least of all saints is this grace given that I should preach unto the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. This guy who used to wake up, who was taught. Hatred is taught. He was taught to hate Gentiles. He was taught to hate Samaritans. But something happened to Paul. Because now he says, not only do I not hate them, I get to sit down and eat with them. I get to work with them. I get to worship with them and be and live among them. What in the world happened to the Apostle Paul? Christ, the death, the burial, and the resurrection, the truth of the gospel transformed him from the inside out. And he went from killing and hating Gentiles to loving and working and worshiping and eating with them. Unity. There's unity supposed, supposed to be the young, between the young and the old throughout the New Testament. As Paul, the older preacher, was handing the mantle off to Timothy, he said, don't let anybody look down on you for your youth. Don't anybody despise you just because they're younger, you're younger than they are. No, this is the way it's supposed to work in the church, the family of God, the pillar and ground of the truth. In 1 Timothy chapter 5, verses 1 through 3, Treat the older, older, older men as fathers, as the older women as mothers. What does that mean? Show them respect. Show them their due respect to their age. The younger men and younger women as brothers and sisters with all purity as equals. And notice here there has nothing to do with the color of their skin. Nothing. This is the contrast that can be seen by the church when we actually live 
by the authority of the scriptures and become the church in a world that's filled with division and wants to divide us into various and diverse groups and boxes and teach us to hate and to bite and devour one another and to be violent toward one another and be suspicious of one another, we can say there's a better way. It's called the kingdom of Christ where there is neither man or woman, bond or free, Jew or Gentile, young or old, rich or poor, but we're all one in Christ. And yes, even in our political differences, even in our political differences, the greatest example of that, of course, is the difference between Simon the Zealot and Matthew the tax collector. I don't think it's a mistake that these two gentlemen are in that, in that group of people who originally followed Jesus because you have a group. Simon the Zealot hates Rome, hates the government, hates taxes, sees Rome as the occupiers, sees them as the oppressors and wants to destroy them, and thinks he's doing God's service when he does. And then sitting right across the table with him, working right alongside him, is Matthew, who gathered in taxes from his own people, the Jews, and gave it to this occupying force of Rome. There had to be this palpable tension and hatred between these two men. Had to be. And yet, something changed them. Christ and Him crucified transformed them from the inside out and made them very different people. So one of the ways church can bring glory to God is when we begin to be the church and instead of focusing on all the things that are external, we start focusing in on Christ. We start focusing on Jesus our Lord and we focus in on the authority of the scriptures and we sit down at the feet of Jesus and we learn of his new way of meekness and gentleness and humility. We learn about love. We learn about truth and we lift Jesus up for the world to say to see to say you know what we have differences we're a man and a woman but yet we can both lift Jesus up we have political differences but you know what we can both lift Jesus up because this is the message that the world needs and on and on the list goes this is how the church can bring glory to God give me that oh getting ahead of myself there we go Here's another way. Confession. We in the ecclesia, we in this body of Christ need to understand that it is God who owns us. And we live for Him. The Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6, verse 19 and 20, our manner of life, both in body and spirit, should bring glory and honor to God. Now that's a paraphrase, but that's the idea. This heart, this soul that we have surrendered to Jesus belongs to Him now. We're being changed daily, renewed daily by Him and His Word. So that brings me to Matthew chapter 5. We think about how work can glorify God. We begin in Matthew 5. We think about our confession. Just think right now in terms of in peacetime. Just in times of there are no outside forces, we're just living for Jesus. And it says in Matthew 5, verse 13, in this Sermon on the Mount, 
Jesus is telling what his kingdom is going to look like. And he says, you, in this kingdom of Christ, here's what you are. You are the salt of the earth. If the salt loses its flavor, how shall it be seasoned? It is then good for nothing to be thrown out and trampled on the foot of men. But here's your job. You're the salt of the earth. What is it that salt does? Salt preserves. It preserves things. Salt sometimes melts ice. We're getting close to that time of year. We're going to start having snow and ice. There's people going to put salt out on the roads and salt on the sidewalks for what purpose? To melt the ice. That's what the Word of God is. This is what Christians are. We dissolve that harsh, cold, hard, hardened outer exterior. With what? Truth, love, salt makes things palatable, makes it tasty. The Apostle Paul says you can have truth, but you can hurt people with it. Don't let it be your attitude, let it be the truth that does it. Let your speech be with grace, seasoned with salt, answering every man as you ought. As you ought. There's an obligation to speak and defend the truth of Jesus, to defend the truth of the Scriptures. And that's going to sting sometimes. Isn't that something else that salt does? It can sting when it gets inside of a wound. Sometimes the truth is going to sting, but let, let the Word of God do the stinging. Let, let the Word of God do its work, not your attitude. Here's what I mean by that. Jesus came to his hometown to preach the word, opened up a scroll, shut it, said, Today this is fulfilled in your ear. And they were amazed at the grace, the gracious words that came out of his mouth. About two verses later, they want to throw him over a cliff because they hate him. The truth offended them. You and I can simply live our lives we can be a man and a woman. That's going to be offensive to some people nowadays. We just live in that culture. There is male, there is female, and then there are hundreds of counterfeits. It is quite possible I could, you and I could be tagged on this very Facebook live stream right now for saying something like that. The Bible says in this worldview that God made them in their own image. He made them male and he made them female. And that's it. And that marriage is supposed to be between a man and a woman. God hates divorce. It's just simply living a life according to God's plan as a male and a female marrying and giving in marriage. And so we are confessing our belief in the scriptures and the way things are from the very beginning. God made them male and female. Simple ways that we can confess that we believe that Jesus is. We can be the salt of the earth. Furthermore, notice, you are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill that is not to be hidden, nor do they hide it under a lamp. Don't hide it. You are the light. Don't hide your light. Don't be embarrassed. Don't be ashamed of Jesus. Don't be embarrassed by being a follower of Christ. 
Don't be embarrassed to lift up the cross. Don't hide it. But on a lampstand, and it gives light to everyone in the house. Let your light shine before men that they may see your good works and may glorify your Father in heaven. So it is through our works because we've been transformed from the inside out. We've been changed by this gospel. And now we become a voice for the voiceless. Now we defend the defenseless. Now we lift up those who are down and we lift them up. Now we're different. We expose. We, we expose sin for what it is. We call it what it is. We have so many code words. These days we call abortion what? Women's reproductive health. That's what it's called. Water it down. Seems more humane. Seems better. Doesn't seem as horrific. Instead of saying it's the murder of a child. The dismemberment of a child. So there's many ways we can confess. We can be the light of the world and expose evil and darkness. What does light do but dispel darkness? When you go into a house at night, what's the first thing you're probably going to do? Turn on a light. Because that's what we do. So we can see what's in the room. So, the Apostle Paul, I really need to move on from this point. The Apostle Paul said this in Philippians 1 and verse 19. Whether it is by life or by death, I want the Lord to be magnified in my body. So if I live, I want the Lord to be magnified by what I do and what I say. If I die, I want it to be known that I died for the Lord. Either way, I want the Lord to be magnified in my body. I want them, when they see me, I want them to see Jesus. When they hear me, I want them to hear Jesus. So... One of the ways we can bring glory to God as the church is by our confession. Standing on the truth, let our speech be with grace, seasoned with salt, answering, defending every man as we are obligated to do in our life and in our death. Third thing, and finally, and rather quickly, is in our purity. In Ephesians chapter 5, we find that the church is supposed to be presented to the Lord. There is this presentation that is supposed to take place. And we know from verse 31 in particular, um, are we there? Ephesians chapter 5, verse 26. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her. Verse 26, that he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of water by the word, that he might present her, present the church to himself, a glorious church, without spot, without wrinkle, or any such thing. We should be holy that we should be without blemish. That's a pretty high calling. But there's this presentation that's supposed to take place, and Paul tells us that he's talking about Christ and the church here. The first thing that we see is that he wants to sanctify her. That this group of people called the church, the ecclesia, that bride of Christ, she's going to be different. She's going to be set apart. 
And she's going to be beautiful. What happens on a wedding day? Everything leads up to the wedding day, right? All the plans. I don't care if it's finding a church building or another place for the wedding and all the decorations and all the wedding party. It all leads up to that moment. You know, the, the flower girl, she's cute. And she's throwing flowers and stuff. It's cute. The ring bearer, that's a little iffy and sketchy sometimes. Is he actually going to make it down the, down the aisle or is he going to cry and throw a fit and drop on the floor and all sorts of stuff? Or is he actually going to get the rings up to where they belong? And that's kind of cute and funny and can be memorable. The wedding party comes in, the music's played, there's decorations, there's the mom and the grandparents and so on and so forth. Here's my point. When does everybody stand up? When that bride comes in. When the bride comes in, everybody stands up, everybody turns, everybody looks. Everybody wants to look at her. The beauty of that dress, the beauty of that day, and the things. It's a beautiful presentation. So on the end of the day of judgment, so this church is going to be presented to the Lord. Set apart, different, stand out, clean, pure, without spot without wrinkle, submitting to the Word of God. There has to be, there must be purity in our worship. Must be. What was the problem with Nadab and Abihu? But innovation in worship. We're going to offer fire that was not commanded by the Lord. So, because of their perversion of worship, the Lord destroyed them on the spot. Uncle Moses and their father Aaron just stood by and watched and they held their peace. And what was the reason? God said, because you glorified me not in worship. This happened. Moses and Aaron stopped in their tracks, didn't say a word. Because you're not to have this perverted worship. When we bring innovations, when we bring in things that are not authorized by the scriptures, it's perverted worship no matter how good it sounds or how sincere you might be. The church has to be pure in its worship, pure in its assemblies. In Acts chapter 5, we find that Ananias and Sapphira are destroyed on the spot for lying. Lying. Seems to be a rather small lie, but a lie nonetheless. That property was theirs. It belonged to them. They sold it. But what they tried to do is make it appear to be something that it wasn't. He said, why Satan entered your heart? So he destroyed them on the spot. What is the point of that? God says, I want my church to be without spot, without blemish, and that sins need to be addressed. They need to be addressed quickly and swiftly because the church is supposed to be pure in the eyes of God. And in our conduct... There was a guy who was taken in a sin that made heathens blush in the city of Corinth. And Paul said, you guys should be embarrassed. You guys should be embarrassed. You let him come in here and participate in this worship and even perhaps, arguably, implicitly, lead in worship. And you're puffed up when you should be mourning because his sin has separated him from God and you're not addressing that. He's lost and you're letting him be lost and you're lulling him into this false sense of security. You need to address this sin. 
So we need to have this purity because there's this presentation that needs to take place. The Lord comes back for His church. And so one of the ways that we can glorify the Lord is in our unity. In a world that's filled with wanting to divide us into little boxes and groups, we can come in here, it doesn't matter if you're a man or a woman, rich or poor, black or white, no matter what your past is, we can be one in Christ because we're all equally sinners in need of a Savior. All of us need to repent, come back to Christ. We can show the glory of God and we can reflect that in our confession when we are actually the salt and light, stand for truth and live for God and according to His plan and His design for the home and for worship. And in purity, addressing sins and repenting of sins and addressing the sins, acknowledging the sins and repenting of those swiftly. I want to encourage you today that if you haven't yet, I want to encourage you to come to Christ. To believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, to repent of your sins, means you have to acknowledge them. Acknowledge them and repent of them. Confess the great name of Christ and be immersed in water for the remission of sins and placed in this church, in this ecclesia that God had in his mind before he said, let there be light. The Apostle Paul in Ephesians 3 walked us out into eternity, stood us right in front of the heart and mind of God, where before he said, let there be light, the church, this ecclesia, was already on his mind. And you can be a part of that today, that's that church that is heaven-bound. If you are a member of the church and somewhere along the line you've put your cross down, you've been embarrassed or ashamed to live for Jesus, maybe you're living in sin and you're hiding it from everybody around you except for God. He's the one that counts. It's time to repent of those sins. It's time to acknowledge those sins, call them what they are, repent of them, come home, rekindle that fire. Whatever your need is, won't you come? Together we stand and encourage you. The words of this song.